0: We're going to read the full text together. This is verses one through six, moth and rust. James writes, Come now, you who come now, you rich, weep and howl, James five one, for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches, James five two, have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of judgment. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. And just for a little bit of encouragement at the end for some context. Be patient, verse 7, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late or latter rains. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. Somebody handed me a story that I think is apropos. And as uh, you turn to Matthew 6, let me share the story. An American investment banker was at the pier of a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat, boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The American complimented the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch them. The Mexican replied, only a little while. The American then asked, why didn't he stay out longer and catch more fish? The Mexican said, he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The American then asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The Mexican fisherman said, I sleep late, I fish a little, play with my children, take siestas with my wife, Maria, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my amigos. I have a full and busy life. The American scoffed. He said, I'm a Harvard MBA, and I could help you. You should spend more time fishing, and with the proceeds, you could buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to a processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, the processing, and the distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, then to L.A. and eventually to New York City, where you will run your expanding enterprise. The Mexican fisherman said, but how long will this all take? To which the American replied, about 15 to 20 years. But what then, asked the Mexican. Well, the American laughed and said, well, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO, sell your company stock to the public, and become very rich, and you would make millions. Millions. Then what? The American said, well, here's the best part. Then you would retire, move to a small coastal fishing village (laughs) where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siestas with your wife, Maria. Then you could stroll to the village in the evenings, where you could sip wine and play guitar with your amigos. Yeah. At the outset of James chapter 5, I think you guys can see the serious nature by which James brings the thoughts. And this is an important section, but it's important to understand something about context and the spectrum or the lens by which you see these verses. These verses are written in what's called an Old Testament prophetic warning style. And oftentimes when passages of the Bible are read by Christians or Israel of old, the direct audience may be the Jewish nation or the believing church, but the persons being addressed may not be us or the believing church. Let me explain. Sometimes God will address some rich uh, persecutors of the church, landowners and so forth, but his intent is not so much against the church, but to give the church hope that though they've been suffering and persecuted at the hands of the wealthy who are manipulating them, God knows, God cares, and eventually God will judge. So in some ways, some portions of the Bible are addressed to people who may not even read them because they're therefore, therefore the encouragement of us who need to know that God is just And vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And this would uh, move out to different areas of our lives. It might not just be financially where someone maybe has wronged you, withheld your pay, fired you for some unjust reason, but it could be in other areas of your life as well where someone's wronged you, hurt you. And you're watching that person maybe from a distance and wondering, is there ever going to be justice? Is there ever going to be a time when the Lord repays that person for the wrong? Uh, that they have perpetrated? And the answer is yes. That's why verse seven, which we'll touch on next Sunday, says, be patient as you wait for the day of the Lord. So we need to be careful when we address this topic because this topic is not so much a polemic against the rich. It's a warning for people who make wealth in the wrong way and use it in the wrong way. It's about people who make wealth with injustice, backroom deals, uh, manipulating on the backs of other people, do everything to get the next dollar. They, they don't care who they have to sacrifice so that they can get their mansion and their yacht. And all the while, God says, if you're doing that, if you're getting unjust gain, which the Bible warns up and coming church leaders, those who are going to enter into the pastorate and as an elder, not to be a lover of unjust gain or sordid gain. This is the idea. It's not the idea that you shouldn't be working hard. It's not the idea that God doesn't want to bless you and give give you the ability to make wealth. It is not the idea that if you own a company, you should just settle for mediocrity. Or if you're an employee of a company, you should just kind of squeak by. No, you should be the best you can be. But in the end, it is about how you view money, how you make money, how you view money, and how you use money. It's been said that money can be a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And for many people in our world, if you really were to pull back the veil, if you were to take a microphone to a local college or university and put it into a young college student's face and say, what's your goal for the next 50 years, what do you think the response would be? Oh, I want to do everything I can to glorify Jesus Christ and extend his kingdom. I would be shocked. I'd drop the microphone if that happened. But I think most people are going to respond, I'd like to be rich and I'd like to be famous. And the question is why? You guys see the same stories that I do. How well together do the rich and famous actually have it? And in this room right now, we as Americans are in the top 5% of worldly wealth. So we have to be careful that we don't think that this is not about us potentially as well. With the qualification that we need to be careful that we don't become judge and jury of others who are doing well. Or that we don't have some form of disdain for the person who's just a little higher up on the food chain than us. Because if we do that, we'll become legalistic, we'll become judges with evil motives, and then we'll be in trouble. So we have to see the text properly. Here's what's going on historically before we read the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. There was really not a middle class back in the day. You were either wealthy or you were poor. A day laborer literally lived day to day. Some of you could say right now, if we interviewed you, our family lives paycheck to paycheck. If your boss were to cut you a check and there was insufficient funds or he said the, the company's not doing well, I can't pay you this week, some of you would be in a tough spot. Some of you even write checks, maybe against a check that's gonna go into your account and you know if those funds don't come in, you're in trouble. Well, for a day laborer back in this time of James and Jesus, here's what would happen. He literally was living day to day and he had no means to save and there was very little means of credit back in the day. So if you were a day laborer, and let's say you worked 10 to 12 hours in a field for a landowner, a wealthy landowner, and at the end of the day, you were looking for your pay and the landowner said, I'm not gonna pay you or I don't have it or use some excuse, you would have to go home Walk through the door, look at your wife, look at your family and everybody else you were caring for with your head hung to the ground and say, I've got nothing. There'd be no dinner that night. In fact, the common day laborer back in this time would be living literally on the verge of starvation. That's the historical context. And so when James addresses wealthy landowners here who are holding back pay and they had all the power, An interesting tidbit when you do a little research of the time is that a lot of the wealthy landowners were actually the Sadducees. They were religious leaders of the day who had power over the people. And oftentimes under the umbrella of religiosity, they were building their own kingdoms and devastating the impoverished and the day laborer. And so that's the historical backdrop of James 5. So that we don't get the idea that James is just broad-brushing anybody who's wealthy or making money or doing well. No, that's not the case. If you're doing well, if your company's doing well, if you're doing well as an employee, thank God. But think about, think about the way that you use your wealth. Are you giving to try to grow the kingdom of God? Well, James uh, may have been standing on a day when Jesus preached the famous Sermon on the Mount. If you pick up Matthew 6 with me in verse 19, here's Jesus's words. Keep in mind, James did not become a believer until after the resurrection. He did not believe in his half-brother, Jesus, until after he was raised from the dead. So it may well be that James heard this sermon. He may have heard a lot of things that Jesus taught. And you're going to see that in the section we just read, there's things that are very similar to what Jesus taught right here. Jesus says, Matthew six nineteen, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Some of you may be wondering, how do you store up treasure in heaven? I've never seen heaven. I've never been to heaven. I don't know a lot of stuff about heaven. Heaven is a representation of God and his kingdom. And every time you do something, as Jesus said, to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And in some ways, you add to your crown. You store up treasures in heaven because you're extending a kingdom that will never end, that will never die, that will never corrode, that will never wear away, that will never have a change of leadership or a coup or something of that nature, something that will be stable forever. Where are you making your investments? Jesus used parables about investments to talk about things that will last and really what our priorities are. For many people, we have to admit that money has become their God. And so Jesus is addressing this. And he says, For where your treasure is, 21, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one, there is no exception, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, and yet Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And sometimes we wonder, sometimes, you know, we have sleepless nights. If you turn back to the book of James, wondering if God's really going to take care for us. This, in many ways, is a trust issue. And when it comes to how we disperse or give out what God gives to us, it comes down to a trust issue And it does come down to what kingdom we are actually building. James opens the section with the phrase, Come now, James 5.1. And that'll sound familiar to a lot of you who heard Pastor John deal with the last section of James 4. Notice the same opening phrase is in James 4.13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, James 4.13, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. The big omission, the big thing that's left out in this particular passage is that these folks have omitted God and His will for their lives. How many evangelical Christians do you think get married, move to a certain location, start a business, make purchases, make major life decisions without any regard to the will of God and the extension of His kingdom? I would say to you it's rampant in the Christian church. And this is a challenge for all of us who say we want to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The question becomes, how do we build that kingdom? What does that look like on a Monday afternoon as much as it does on a Sunday morning? Well, James says, come now, you rich, weep. The word weep there is to sob, wail aloud, uh, sign of pain and howl. It's a literally in the Greek, it's a shriek for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Now, if we were to imagine that the church that James addresses was filled with a lot of common day laborers, a lot of poor, impoverished people, you could understand how this would encourage them. Earlier in James' letter, they heard James say they were to consider it all joy when they encountered various trials. And some of the poor people might say, I'm in a trial right now. This wealthy landowner I work for, you never know if he's going to pay you at the end of the day or not. And I've had to go to court, and oftentimes when I go to court to try to get my proper pay, he knows the judge, and he's bought off the judge, or they're buddies. What do I do in this kind of situation? God, are you hearing my prayer? You tell me I'm going to consider it all joy. But how can I do that when this guy's getting away with it? And James writes James chapter 5 to say he's not. You need to be patient, because there's going to be a day when God deals with those who have stepped on the backs of others to build their own kingdom. Our attitude toward the poor is important to God, but we need to understand that when people are manipulating and it seems they've gotten away with it, nobody's getting away with anything. A day of judgment is coming and God's scales will be true. Proverbs 14, 20 through 22 says, The poor is hated even by his neighbor, but those who love the rich are many. He who despises his neighbor sins, but happy is he who is gracious to the poor. Will they not go astray who devise evil? But kindness and truth will be to those who devise good. In the last uh, couple of months, I've been sharing with you stories from our Benevolence Fund. We helped uh, a woman who was in distress build, excuse me, uh, lay her mother to rest. She had no money to do the memorial service, and you guys paid for that through the Benevolence Fund. We have families that come here week in and week out. We give them gift cards for groceries. We pay light bills. When we know someone's genuinely poor, they're a widow or a widower, they just don't have the means, they've done everything they can, there's a lot of stories I could share with you guys about what you do. When you give, money does go to help the poor. We're helping missionaries on the mission field. There are things that we're doing right here from Corona. As we give to the kingdom of God, we're helping people hear the gospel in different places and so forth. I heard of a story of natives of a third world country who were given a sundial. They were thrilled as they learned how to tell time by observing the shadow of the sun on the face of the sundial. As days passed, this amazing instrument attracted such interest that the leaders of the tribe decided that the sundial deserves some sort of worship. To the delight of the leaders, large crowds gathered to worship, However, this created a problem. They now feared for the safety of this remarkable device. It was decided that a beautiful building be erected to house it. This, they thought, would protect it from any would-be thief. You guys see where this is going, don't you? The project was completed. A formal celebration was announced. As thousands gathered, the leaders stood before the sundial, sundial, at which time they made a startling discovery. The sundial, the center of attraction, was now useless. Rather than admit their error, the leaders decided to preserve it as a shrine for future generations, thus preserving their own dignity. Christina Onassis said, happiness is not based on money. The best proof of that is my family. Oftentimes we see well-to-do families and when we really pull back the veil or we hear the story years later, it's not pretty. Comedian Richard Pryor was critically burned in a Accident in 1980. The accident was caused by his partaking of crack cocaine out of a crack pipe. He described that his addiction had gotten so bad that he sat in a room, isolated himself, and it got so bad that his crack cocaine pipe began to speak to him. He said, you know you're in trouble when your crack cocaine pipe begins to speak to you. Later, he appeared on the Johnny Carson show and he shared the following words. He said, when you're seriously ill, money isn't important. All that I could think of was to call on God. I didn't call the Bank of America one time. Close quote. And in the day of trouble, money will not deliver. We have many, many verses in Scripture that say riches will not deliver on the day of judgment. God does care about our attitudes and he cares about our actions. We've talked about the theme verse of James is that we're to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. We talked about James one twenty seven: that true and undefiled religion is this, in the sight of our God and Father, to help orphans and widows in their distress and to keep ourselves unstained from the world. I know the book of James is tough. I know it's in our kitchen. But this is how change comes. And I've had many of you come up to me and say, man, the book of James. And we just, yeah, <laughs> the book of James. Remember we called the book of James the book of Frank? Frankly, this is what James says to us, right? And when we hear it and we respond to it, we're all the better. And so in the NIV, he says, listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. This is a prophetic woe or lament common in the Old Testament. If you're interested to see some of these, write down Isaiah 10:5, 28, 1 of Isaiah. You could re- read Isaiah chapters 5, 13, 15, and 34. If you've ever studied the book of Isaiah, you know that there's an oracle against this nation, an oracle against that nation, an oracle against this leader. And there are prophetic woes. And they're an indictment against a leader who's manipulated the people of Israel, or persecuted the people, or killed them or been merciless, had no pity or compassion. And God addresses these world leaders and basically says, I will preside over your funeral. This is a burst of righteous indignation. An example is Isaiah 33, 1 addressed to Assyria. It says, Woe to you, O destroyer, you who have not been destroyed. Woe to you, O traitor, you who have not been betrayed. When you stop destroying, you will be destroyed. When you stop betraying, you will be betrayed. There's a warning in Isaiah 13 that I'd like you to to turn to to get a flavor of how these are written. Find the book of Isaiah, go to chapter 13. This is written in the day of the Lord type of language. So it does address the last days, but often there's a dual interpretation or a dual meaning. That is, it's addressed to a world empire or leader of the day, and it's also addressed to the last days of the world. Isaiah thirteen six says these words. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah thirteen seven. Therefore all hands will fall limp and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will ride like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. That's verse Eight, just right in your margin there, Indiana Jones. You remember that scene in Indiana Jones when their faces become inflamed? <laughs> Poof! Glorious movie making. There's a section in the book of Amos that is very apropos to this idea. Uh, this is Amos 8, 2 through 7. Don't worry about turning there if you'd like to follow along, but here's Amos 8, 2 through 7. It says, God said, what do you see, Amos? I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The songs of the palace will turn to wailing in that day, declares the Lord. Many will be the corpses in every place that will cast them forth in silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell, sell, sell? Sell grain and the the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market. Let's get the religious days over so we can sell. To make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger. To cheat with dishonest scales. Think of the money changers. So as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. That we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Indeed, God says, I will never forget any of their deeds. Their actions reveal that they did not love God, and God says what they did, get this, I swear, says God, and it's very rare when God swears. He can't swear by anybody higher than himself. He says, I swear I will never forget what they have done. Now, as a person in the early church reading this stuff, you had to be encouraged, especially if you had been ripped off lately, turn back to the book of James, But if you were a wealthy landowner sitting in the same congregation, you might be a bit disquieted or discomforted. There's an Anglican bishop. His name is J.C. Ryle from a generation ago or two. He says the following about money, extremely insightful. He says, it is possible to love money without having it. It's possible to have it without loving it. He goes on to say, Money in truth is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. Or as we've heard about, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. He says there is trouble in the getting of it. There is anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. That's good, isn't it? As Solomon put it in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to leave my stuff that I've amassed to somebody else, and I don't know how they're going to handle it or what they're going to do with it. And we all know that we can't take our possessions with us to the next kingdom. Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm going to leave it. As the old saying goes, We never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You are going to leave it all behind. And the question is, how much are you paying forward into the ultimate kingdom? How much am I? He goes on in James 5, 2. He says, your riches or your wealth have become rotten or have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. How many of you have seen those shows Those hoarding shows. Have you seen that before? If you Google the word hoarding and Google images of hoarding, it's a it's a weird and sad situation that you'll often see. Here's a person who has so many possessions, they're garbage, they're food wrappers. Stuff from 30, 40 years ago. Paperwork, boxes. They can't throw anything away. Get this. They can't even throw their garbage away. And when you see pictures of a hoarder, they have encased themselves in their stuff, created a little cubby in which they can live, made room for hallways to get to the restroom and the kitchen, and stuff is piled from the floor to the ceiling and has become a home of countless mice and rats. And we say, what is the deal here? What is with this sickness or this mental condition of hoarding? It's simply this. Someone is so worried about getting rid of anything because they put their trust in stuff and they become sick. There's a story I came across some years ago of a woman who, they found her dead. She was an elderly woman, dead in her apartment. She had been surviving on cat food. She had really nothing. You know, everything had holes. Everything was was in disarray and she died from malnutrition and she was dehydrated. She literally died of starvation. As they began to dig a little bit more into this woman and her history, they found out she had nearly a million dollars in the bank. She had banknotes and stocks and bonds. She died of malnutrition and starvation eating cat food. Why? Because she wanted to protect her little nest egg for whatever reason. And she died when she had plenty of stuff to take care of herself. See, this is the human dilemma and condition. This is the problem with riches. How many remember the story when God blessed the people of God with manna? And he said, I want you to gather it one day at a time. Don't gather a couple days except for the Sabbath. Because if you gather more than one day, it's going to spoil. And little green worms are going to grow out of it. And some people couldn't even listen to that instruction. See, God wants us to trust him for manna for today, for our daily bread. And as Americans, it's hard for us because we live in a very affluent society. But we need to get the first things first. Kevin Long, who played under coach Bobby Bowden at Florida State University, said his coach inspired the team with many parables. He recounted a favorite story. He said Bowden was playing college baseball. He had never hit a home run. And finally, one day... He hit one down the right field line into the corner, rounded first, picked up the third base coach, waving him on. He hit third, came to home, hit home plate. He had his first home run. He's slapping high fives with his teammates. He's joyous, but much to his chagrin and alarm, the pitcher took the ball back from the umpire, threw the ball to first base in an appeal, and Bowden was called out. What? No, what? You see, he had missed first base in his excitement of rounding the bases in his first home run. As a lesson to his team, he said, if you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what you do. He said, if you don't honor the Lord first, it doesn't matter what else you do. How many of you remember the story? There was this is a great video from some years ago. It was a college softball game, and it was a championship game, and, and a young lady had hit a home run to win the game. And she was celebrating and she was going around first base and I don't even know if it was on the base or her, she was jumping up and down, but she tweaked her leg and she couldn't move. She was on the ground writhing in pain and everybody's trying to figure out what to do. What, what's the rule in this kind of case? And the rule says you cannot put a pinch runner in for that player. They have to touch the bases all on themselves. And in a shocking video, the other team, at the expense of them losing the championship game, picked up this girl, put her on their shoulders. And as they passed each base, they helped her touch first, then second, then third, then home. Her home run counted and the, the girls on the other team that carried her spelled their own loss. But they won in a much bigger way. In fact, I wouldn't even be telling this story to you unless that life lesson had occurred You see, there are some things that are much more important than our next indulgence or another step up for us. And it's hard for us. It's hard for me in the society in which we live. Your garments have become moth eaten. How many of you tried to pull out a suit? Maybe you stored it in a garage or a closet. You're going to a wedding. You got a suit from the late late 1970s. Like, honey, I'm good. We don't need to go to men's warehouse. I got a suit from back in the day. It's got ruffles, it's a pink color. And you go out there, and there you are in the garage. You try to put the suit on. You're like, ooh. Ooh. It's not me. This thing has shrunk over the years. I haven't got larger. It's a problem with the clothing. And then you find it's been moth-eaten. It's weird. There's holes everywhere in the garment. And your wife looks at you and says, go to the men's warehouse. You'll like the way you look. You won't like the way you look. I won't like the way you look in that thing. And you might respond, but holes are cool these days. The, kid, the kids buy them with the holes, the moth holes in them now. Yeah, but you're too old for that. <laughs> One writer says, the moth looks like a harmless creature. In its pearly white color, it hovers about with, with, without sound at twilight. Or in a dark room, and especially in our closets where woolen clothes are kept, it is not impertinent like the robust flies of the summer. It does not have a sting like the mosquito. It does not sound in our ears the shrill notes of a cricket. It does not nibble and gnaw like the mouse or rat or roaches do or indecently overrun our food. It is most fair, is the moth silent, apparently harmless. Yet every housewife springs after it with electric haste. It is a dreadful pest, not for what it is, but for what it does. Once a garment is moth-eaten, It's almost impossible to repair. How true this is in the case of the proud rich, says this writer. Once one begins to suffer the sickness of pride of riches, the cure is very difficult. Let us beware, for once the moths have done their work upon us, there is hardly any hope. Let us remember also that the moth does its work secretly without our realizing it, and so does our pride in riches." We may be proud of the things we wear and possess without ever realizing it. How stealthily the moth works and how stealthily our pride of our souls. You see, your gold and silver, verse 3, have rusted, says James. And someone might say, well, yeah, the moths may eat my clothes and maybe other creatures can get to my food or my food will spoil, but not my silver and gold. I got silver and gold. They don't rust. But there's some evidence back in the day that the coinage of James' day was not pure, but contained alloys and could rust under conducive circumstances. Or James may be speaking figuratively, figuratively declaring that in the day of God's judgment, gold and silver will be useless as if they were rusted. And so we have to be careful when it comes to our currency I heard a story of the European countries, January 1st, 2002. Uh, they began switching from their existing currency, the lira, frank, mark, and so on, to the euro. After a grace period of six to eight weeks, all traditional currency became worthless. According to the Chicago Tribune, two men in Berlin plan to fill an empty swimming pool with nearly 45 million worth of Deutsche Marks. They've invited people to come to the pool party and dive in. The German government will use about 128 shredding machines to dispose of old banknotes. The state government of Hesse will burn its marks in a heating system. And organizers of the Cologne Carnival want to use shredded notes as confetti. The Austrian, uh, Austrians' plan to turn their shilling into, into 560 tons of compost. Likewise, there will come a day when all our money will become no more valuable than compost. Close quote. It's hard for us to imagine that we could look at a banknote or we could look at coinage and we could say, oh, it'll be worthless one day. But that's just the truth. And we've been sold a lie that the things that we think are going to last actually will not. And that's why we need wisdom to handle things correctly. The Apostle Peter writes, Don't ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. An economist heard that verse and he was quite amazed about it. So he went to God and he said, Lord, is it true that a thousand years for us is like one minute to you? The Lord said, yes. The economist said, then a million dollars to us must be like a penny to you. The Lord said, well, yes. The economist said, will you give me one of those pennies? The Lord said, all right, all right, I will just wait here a minute. Behold, the pay of the laborers, verse five, James, verse 4, James 5, who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries or shouts out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. It's a unique word. It's the Lord of hosts, ESV. It's the Lord Almighty, NIV. The New Living Translation says, it's the Lord of, of heaven's armies. If you mess with God and His people, the one who leads the angelic armies might set his target sights on you. And as His people cry to Him and say, "We've been wrong, Lord. Help. There's no justice." God says to the rich one who's manipulating his people, watch out. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due," Proverbs 3:27. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you have it with you. Leviticus 19.13 says, don't defraud your neighbor or rob him. Don't hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Deuteronomy 24.14 and 15 says, you shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your lands or your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. Deuteronomy twenty-four, fourteen and fifteen. Malachi three, five says, Then I will draw near for you to you for judgment. I will be swift a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earners in his wages, the widow and the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord. Of host. and finally, Jeremiah twenty-two thirteen says, "Woe to him who builds his house without righteousness, and his upper rooms without justice; who uses his neighbor's services without pay, and does not give him his wages." We're winding down, but let's look at the last two verses. He says to this audience, "You've lived luxuriously on the earth; you've led a life of wanton pleasure; you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter." You've lived a pampered life. You've lived delicately. Imagine on a farm a hog or a turkey or a cow that doesn't realize it's being fattened in the field. It's out there. But the problem is it's been being fattened for what? A day of slaughter. And that's the image James gives us of the wealthy, uh, unbelieving rich who are hurting God's people. She who gives herself to wanton pleasure, 1 Timothy 5:6, is dead even while she lives. James seems to be saying that soft living will sap you and destroy a man of his moral fiber. Watch somebody who has so much wealth, so much luxury, so much pampered living that they have to think up the next pleasure because they get bored with the caviar and bored with the yachts and bored with this and bored with that. So they have to think of new ways to entertain themselves. They become pampered and soft. We were meant to work, men. We were meant to work and to earn a living. We were meant to do what God's called us to do, ladies. Ezekiel 16, 49 says of Sodom, she and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and the and needy. Get this, Bible students. Ezekiel 16, 49 indicates, we know homosexuality was a big problem in Sodom. But what may have led to that sin was careless, luxurious living where they were trying to think up new ways to pleasure themselves. And so they got into all these rampant, ungodly lifestyles because they were bored. And you look at our nation right now and look at our youth And look at the the generation that's coming up that thinks everybody owes them something. And you have to be concerned as a person just watching what's happening. We need to heed the word of the Lord. Do you agree? There's wisdom here. And as I mentioned, the religious leaders were the ones behind a lot of this because they love money, Luke 16, 14. In his first sermon in an elementary preaching class, Lawrence, an African student, chose a text about the joys that we'll share when Christ returns and ushers us to our heavenly homes, our heavenly home. He said, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that is here, the fine homes, the cars, the clothes. I've listened to many sermons in churches here too, but I've yet to hear one sermon about heaven. Because everyone has so much in this country, no one preaches about heaven People here don't seem to need it. In my country, most people have very little. So we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. In Luke 16, Jesus told the story of a rich man and Lazarus. We won't have you turn there, but I think most of you know the story. The rich man and the poor beggar, Lazarus, both die. And they end up in two different places. Lazarus is in a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. He's next to Abraham, the father of the faithful And he's in bliss. He's in paradise. He's in the paradise of God. The rich man who had everything, he lived sumptuously every day. He's in a place called Hades. And he says he's in agony in this flame. And he sees the poor beggar who was laid at his gate every day. And he kind of just, you know, he didn't really care much about him. And the only one that cared about poor Lazarus was the dogs that came and licked his sores. How many of you are dog lovers? Dogs will always have compassion on you. When everybody gives up on you, your dog will stand by you. <laughs> right? That's the only one. And so now it's the afterlife. One of the few behind-the-scenes pictures of what happens when someone dies. And Jesus speaking for Abraham says, Hey, son, in your life you had your good things and Lazarus his, his bad things. Now you're there in torment and he's here being comforted. And even more, there's a big chasm between you and us, and we can't go to you, and you can't come to us. Well, the rich man in this world says, Well, then, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my house. I've got five brothers, lest they come into this place of torment. And Abraham says, They, your brothers, have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, but if one comes back from the dead, they'll believe And Abraham responding, Jesus telling the story, says, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rises from the dead. And in the very history in which those statements were made, Jesus Christ went into the tomb, rose from the dead, and the religious leaders paid off the guards to say his body was stolen. Why? To protect their positions and their power. There's nothing new. Under the sun. And so James closes with these words, this section. He says, You've condemned and put to geth, put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you, or maybe he has no way of opposing you. Bible students, if you peek at James 4:2 again, remember James said there were people who were lusting and they didn't have James 4-2, and they were committing murder. And this could well be, commentators believe that. It may well be literal that some people had murdered others by their manipulation and lust for greed. And they had even hurt other people that they claimed to have the same faith. What do we do? How do we walk away with a sermon like this? Well, I think if you're someone who's been on the receiving end of injustice, you read verse 7, which exhorts patience until the coming of the Lord. And we'll learn some of those lessons next time. And as we prepare our hearts for communion, I know we're a little over on our time, but I want to ask the ushers to get ready to hand out the elements. I want to leave you with a story from an autobiography, Just As I Am, by Billy Graham. He said, Some years ago, Ruth and I had a vivid illustration of James teaching on an island in the Caribbean. One of the wealthiest men in the world had asked us to come to his lavish home for lunch. He was 75 years old, and throughout the entire meal, He seemed close to tears. He said to Billy Graham and his wife, I am the most miserable man in the world. He said, out there is my yacht. I can go anywhere I want to. I have a private plane. I have helicopters. I have everything I want to make my life happy. Yet I am as miserable as hell. We talked to him, says Billy, and prayed with him, trying to point him to Christ, who alone gives lasting meaning to life. Then we went down the hill to a small cottage where we were staying. That afternoon, the pastor of the local Baptist church came to call. He was an Englishman. He, too, 75 years old, was a widower. He had spent most of his time taking care of his two invalid sisters. He was full of enthusiasm and love for Christ and love for others. He said, I don't have two pounds to my name, but I am the happiest man on this island. Billy Graham relates how he asked his wife Ruth after they left, who do you think was the richer man of the two? She didn't have to reply because they both knew the answer to the question. Father, as we prepare to come to your table, we're so grateful for the gift of Jesus Christ. He became poor that we might become rich. He left the glories of heaven, his throne, his majesty, his splendor and glory to be born in a cave or a stable in Bethlehem. He grew up in a nowhere town called Nazareth, a place that most people wouldn't even think twice of and had disdain for. He came from the region of Galilee, and he was mocked for it. And he came to his own, and many of his own did not receive him. But to them who did receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God who believe in his name, who are born not of the will of man or of the flesh, but of the spirit. And Lord, as we think about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, we think about his humility, how he came down to rescue us, how he came to save, and he even said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You became poor that we might become rich in the harvest of salvation. And we know you're coming again as king and judge to judge the living and the dead at your appearing and at your coming. And Lord, we as your people, we know that these warning texts are really not for us because when you come, we're going to lift up our heads and say, yes, come Lord Jesus. But for the unbelieving world, for those who have persecuted and wronged and hurt so many, there will be a day of judgment. And the judge is Jesus And Lord, each time we come to this table, Paul tells us to remember the Lord Jesus until he comes. And so with each of us, Lord, those who are believers in this room, those who may be wayward sheep, those who um, want to come to know you or know you better, I pray that these moments will be fruitful in the light of eternity. I'm going to ask you to keep your head and heart bowed. And if you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Cry out to the Lord of heaven's armies. Something like this Lord Jesus, thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you left your glory, came down to be one of us. Thank you for your resurrection from the dead, that I can know that death is not the end. Thank you for heaven, and thank you for hope. I turn from my sin and I place my trust in you for my salvation. Be my Lord be my Savior, be my King. If you want to rededicate your life, I would encourage you, before you take these elements, that you would rededicate your life. If you've been off track, if you've lost your way, maybe you've lost some faith because of injustice. If you draw close to the Lord, He'll draw close to you. And Father, for each precious person that's come into this place, I just thank you. I thank you for this sweet time that we can be together. And I pray that you'll bless each one who partakes and remembers who you are and all you've done for us. In Jesus' holy name I pray and all God's people said.